When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. No, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. You have something I want. Right now, that makes me the only person you can trust to get you out of here alive. I think I'd like to go home now. Oh, Tom Cruise, you old sweet talker, you. Cruise in a clip there from the new Mission Impossible Fallout, the sixth film in a franchise that dates back more than two decades. Returning for the new installment is the creative team behind the previous one, 2015's very good Rogue Nation, including writer-director Christopher McQuarrie and, maybe more notably, co-star Rebecca Ferguson. Our review of Fallout, plus the film spotting top five Tom Cruise performances. That and more. We're doing this show inverted, Josh. Uh, inverted. Maybe my stunt double is ahead on film spotting. This episode's brought to you in part by film spotting listeners, including Julie Ellison from Grand Rapids, Michigan. She's a new Bucka Show donor. It's time to pay the dealer, Julie says. It seems fitting that the first episode I ever listened to was episode 346, where Sam returned to co-host with Adam for a review of Thor. I've been listening ever since and consider you all my film family. When I suggest a movie to my husband, he often rolls his eyes and asks, what did Adam and Josh think of it? Okay, embarrassing, but true. I'm often inspired by you guys and feel grateful to be part of a community of people that love movies the way I do. Thank you for all you do. P.S. I started listening recently to episodes from the beginning, and I find that I will be sad to say goodbye to Sam when he parts from co-hosting. He's so funny, and I love his humble, slightly embarrassed laugh when he claims to like a movie that Adam thinks is really dumb, e.g. Mr. and Mrs. Smith. (laughs) See, this is one difference between you and Sam. He was humble and slightly embarrassed, and you just lean right into it. (laughs) Are you saying that's a bad thing? No, I'm not. Don't worry, Josh, Julie says. Love you, too. Thank you very much. And thank you, Julie, for your kind donation. Thank you to all of our monthly donors and one-time contributors. You really are the lifeblood of the show. A no-cost way you can help us, rate or review us at Apple Podcasts. Every five-star rating, every review really does help us reach new listeners. Thanks to these folks who have left ratings or reviews recently. Fresh Hop Cinema, Junior Holman, and Enweeb? Enweeb. I'm going Enweeb. Okay. We appreciate that you all took the time to post a review recently. And now, Fresh Hop Cinema, I kind of want a beer. That makes me think it's time for a beer. I like where your head's at. Welcome to Film Spotting. 
Later in the show, we'll share a film spotting top five that we hope will prove to be as reliably ageless and compelling as Tom Cruise himself. It's our top five Tom Cruise performances, which we originally recorded back in September 2017, coinciding with the release of American Made. Josh, do you remember American Made? I remember it fondly. It was pretty good. Yeah, I liked it then. And as a matter of fact, the more I think about it, and especially in the context of all of Cruise's performances— an interesting one, a, a self-critique performance, Maybe I think, so. compared to perhaps what we get in Fallout. And if you need more encouragement to finally see American Made, if you did miss it last summer, Mike Ryan wrote a great article over at Uproxx called Tom Cruise's American Made is so damn good and you should watch it immediately. In the piece, Mike says in 20 years, people will look back and say, how could everyone have ignored American Made? What was going on back then? Okay, this will be very far down the what was going on back then question list, but it will still eventually get asked. So let the record show that we were just starting to figure it out and that some of us know already how popular this movie will be in 2038. Mike argues that it will have an insane Sane shelf life on premium cable, then basic cable, and of course, streaming. Could happen. Time will tell. So my question is, are we going to replay this top five again when we get Top Gun Maverick, which <laughs> is now filming, I understand? That's coming out next year? It's true, isn't it? Should we just run this top five annually? I think we should. Okay. As long as Cruz keeps making movies, we'll keep dusting try to, off Try to keep up with five. them. <laughs> it is a revisit top five, but... We will share some feedback on that list that you haven't heard before a little bit before the top five and also after. So there is some new stuff that we're tying back to that list. But first, when Tom Cruise launched the Mission Impossible franchise in 1996, who would have guessed he would still be playing Ethan Hunt 22 years later? Better yet, who would have guessed that the sixth installment would be getting some of the series' best reviews? Time to see if Adam and I believe the hype. You had a terrible choice to make in Berlin. One life over millions. And now the world is at risk. This is the CIA's mission. If he had held on to the plutonium, we wouldn't be having this conversation. His team would be dead. Yes, they would. That's the job. A little spoiler here for our top five Tom Cruise performances, which we'll have later in the show. When we did that top five about a year ago, Adam, I didn't have Ethan Hunt from the Mission Impossible series on my list. He squeaked onto yours at number five. He did. Given all the praise that's been showered on Cruise for his sixth turn as Ethan Hunt in Mission Impossible Fallout, it's as good a time as any to second guess those choices, mine in particular. Fallout brings back a number of familiar faces beyond Cruz and his IMF teammates Ving Rhames and Simon Pegg. As we mentioned, Rebecca Ferguson's British intelligence agent, who we both thought almost stole Mission Impossible Rogue Nation from Cruz, returns here, as does that film's writer-director Christopher McQuarrie. A new face is that of the Man of Steel himself, Henry Cavill, who shows up as a slab of granite. I, I mean a shadowy <laughs> CIA agent. The plot? Anarchists, plutonium, double crosses, the usual stuff. Yeah. In the midst of this, standing as civilized society's last line of defense is Ethan Hunt. Fallout spends a lot of time reflecting on the character of Ethan Hunt, considering what sense of morality drives him, what lines he won't cross, what he symbolizes in the geopolitical landscape. There is a surprise near the end that attempts to humanize him a bit, but mostly Mission Impossible Fallout is Ethan Hunt at his most mythological. Have you bought into the myth even more, Adam? After Fallout, would you bump Ethan Hunt up higher on your Tom Cruise performances list? It's a great question, and it's funny because before I checked earlier today, I assumed that, like you, 
I had left Ethan Hunt off the list completely because I'm probably as guilty as anyone in thinking that a great performance has to be about capital A acting. It's not just about charisma, which Cruz has always had in spades, but these are cases where the character being portrayed isn't a mostly stoic action hero, but it's got to be a quote-unquote complex character, someone who has more volatile emotional swings, maybe expresses a wider range of human behavior. But Josh F. Scott Fitzgerald said, action is character, which if true, means the Ethan Hunt we see in Fallout is the most complex movie character of all time. He's and, the most character character. Yes, he is. And I know I'm deliberately misapplying Fitzgerald there. Dramatic action isn't a matter of scale or degree of difficulty when you're considering literature or cinema, except perhaps when it comes to Ethan Hunt, who I would argue reveals himself in the effort he expends, which, of course, we could probably devote the next 20 minutes connecting that back to Cruz himself as an actor. But anything you'd want to understand about Ethan Hunt's identity, what or who he cares about, what he stands for, any personal or professional codes he lives by, those details are all discernible in how he acts. In fact, how he chooses to act. And McQuarrie here opens the movie as you'd expect. Well, it's actually the second scene, but we watch Ethan getting a mission delivered as usual, and it comes embedded in a copy of Homer's Odyssey, which I won't get into the details at all, but there's a pretty clever little joke there that he's giving you right at the beginning of the film. But there is a tragic Greek character element to the Ethan Hunt we get here. I really like what McQuarrie emphasizes in his character. The disaster that they're ultimately trying to prevent is basically Hunt's doing. He's the problem. And arguably, the harder he strains to stop it, the more he compounds it. Another character does at one point spell it out for us. The fallout of the title is both nuclear and it's personal. It's about the consequences of one's choices. But more subtly, I appreciate it here how we always see Ethan Hunt making those choices. He is deliberating. Whether he has 10 seconds to do it or half a second to do it, whether he's in the midst of a dangerous motorcycle chase through the streets of Paris or he's about to halo jump from a plane at 25,000 feet. We gotta talk. Need to rethink this. Out of my way, Hunt. Walker, we got a problem. There's a storm and we need to... Enough talk. I'll see you in Paris. So, Josh, yes, this is all to say that McQuarrie and Cruz definitely strengthen Hunt's case to be moved up the list. And look, if Leonardo DiCaprio can win an Oscar for freezing and wrestling a digital bear, Cruz's maniacal insistence on verisimilitude in these incredible action sequences, well, maybe that should get him one as well. No need for a revenant shot. I mean, come on. <laughs> This was, this was going to be fun. And then you had to do that. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, Cruz here is pure action. And I agree. I think that's when the character is at his best mm -hmm. and his most defining. He is an unstoppable force. And we'll get to Cavill, who we heard there, as this immovable object. And my greatest joy in watching Fallout was seeing those two 
come up against each other in sure. various ways. He's yep. kind of at the beginning, the Cavill character is tasked to keep an eye on Hunt, essentially. Yes. So there's a, there's a little friction that's right yeah. there at the start. Well, and he says there in that clip, I'll see you in Paris. He's not deliberating at all no. the way Cruz is. He is just acting. But it's funny you describe it that way because there are two modes. There's the one mode, which is fun too, where Hunt has, he's so many steps ahead of us. He's yes. so many steps ahead of everyone. And sometimes we don't get to see those wheels No, the pleasure is having Mm -hmm. the rug pulled out from under our feet as it is to the other characters. Although there's one instance here where I think you see it come in pretty pretty early. But then there are those other moments where – He's unsure of himself and he has to make that decision on the fly. Mm -hmm. Even the motorcycle chase where without explaining it because it's a great moment, let's just say the way he gets out of that. Yeah. He knew what he was doing. The question there is, when did he make that decision mm-hmm. to do what he does? And I think it comes very early on, possibly at the very beginning of that escape. And I love that as well. But the really great moments for me here are when Hunt is knocked off balance a little bit. Yeah. And there's a scene with Ferguson where she says something to him about, you don't know what I know. And his instinct was to say something in response. Of course, I know. I know everything. I'm always three steps. And But then Cruz pauses yeah. Takes a what breath and goes, what don't I know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I do wish that Fallout had a little bit more of that because I think where this movie eventually takes us, it has to do with uh, what I was saying about him becoming a mythological character. He's lauded for some of these decisions he makes in terms of saving the one instead of making the decision to sacrifice sure. one to save the many. He's also criticized and for that. He's Probably criticized more as well. But well, in the end, he's ultimately not only praised for that, and certain characters come around his way of thinking, but he's being put as a paragon, this pedestal, like because we have right. Ethan Hunt in this world yeah. and he operates this way, we will literally, the phrase is, be able to sleep at night. And I do sense as much as I love the action performance of Cruz here, I do sense we're pushing Ethan Hunt to this level where the Cruz smugness does start to settle in a little hmm. bit. The impenetrable, unstoppable nature of him curls just for a bit at the end where you kind of become, all right, I'm starting to have enough of this guy, at least this superhero depiction of Ethan Hunt. I much better like the scenes in this movie where they're deflating that. It goes back to what we were just saying about American Made, where that was all about a guy who thought he was Tom Cruise Mm -hmm. and tried to live his life as if he was Tom Cruise. And there's more capital A acting there. He just couldn't pull it off. There is probably a little more acting there. Um, But yeah, to contradict myself again, I I am not placing this action acting on a lower level of the ladder Mm -hmm. to what he does there. I think he's absolutely brilliant in these scenes in the way he does use his body as a force that while there's still suspense in how is he going to get out of this, how is he going to pull this off – you also know if anyone can, it's going to be him. Mm -hmm. And the the excitement is in – capturing the energy along with him that he yes. brings for these scenes. And there's a ton of that here. I mean, there how is. many really strong action sequences well, do we get? Yeah, let's get to that, though. I will say I never did really tire of him, but this is the trick with all of these films, right? Any movie like this with one of these mythological action heroes, whether it's James Bond or anyone else, how do you walk that line where you want to show him as being fallible? And I think there are enough hints of it here. There are enough cracks in the facade of who Ethan Hunt is and enough external forces. Well, that's that's why Cavill is here to a certain degree. His youth, his different body shape is supposed to be like, all right, time to move over, old man. Like I I can handle this. But at the same time, 
if we're going to get another movie, and even if it isn't about that, what are they really going to do? Are they going to completely pull the rug out from under us under the end and show him to be truly fallible? Well, none of us really expect that. So they're always walking that line. And here with him anyway, at least his superpower really is only or is primarily his insistence. Yes. <laughs> he just right. won't stop. Persistence. And, and, and like, I yeah. think, again, speaking to what I just got done saying, whether you really believe he might fail or not, there is at least a sense in the midst of watching the climax of this film that there's no way he's actually going to pull this off. So you do feel it there. And there is a conversation that takes place not too long before that finale between two of the supporting characters where it's all about Ethan's character. And when they're laying out what he stands for, as opposed to us discerning that from everything he does, that's when it feels a little bit, I think, out of sync with the rest of yeah, the Yeah, it becomes a little bit of a career achievement honor <laughs> while he, while Maybe. he's in the midst of pulling off another insane achievement. Yeah. And, and yeah, to go back to what you were saying about the action scenes, it's in the how, right? It's not it in the if. It's the we know he's going to pull it off. Given this scenario, this insane scenario that's been constructed, how in the world? And on those terms, the movie absolutely delivers. Well, how really is the question with these action sequences? Because it's pretty astonishing. This movie puts the impossible in Mission Impossible in a way that makes the other installments look pretty quaint by comparison, at least the first few. I saw parts of the De Palma one actually just a couple nights ago. It was on TV. It was the opening sequence. And you're seeing Emilio Estevez in an elevator shaft and that whole opening set piece where one of the IMF agents is wearing glasses and they spray something in the air and you can identify who the person is because there's like this green glow around uh-huh. them. It just very feels, 90s. Yeah, it feels very antiquated, obviously, yeah. compared to what we're used to seeing here. It's charming in its own way, but very simple. And somehow, despite how far McQuarrie and Cruz and everyone involved push the limits here, they all feel more realistic than most of the action sequences we've seen in other Mission Impossible movies and the ones we see in most Hollywood movies, period. The camera following Cruz at the very end of the clip we played, following Cruz, not just following Ethan Hunt out the back of that plane as he starts to descend. We know it's Cruz because of the way it's shot, that there clearly is not a cut taking place there. The camera clearly showing Cruz, not Hunt, speeding through Paris on the bike. And you can go on and on, including to the helicopter sequence at the end. I would almost throw out, Josh, that there's a little bit of a contradictory effect to it, which is the more hyper real it is, the more it does draw your attention to that fact. Oh, yeah. And the more in a way you're distracted by that, because then you're paying attention to how the magic trick is being done in a way that takes you out of the movie. So it's almost solving a problem that action movies have that isn't really a problem for most viewers. That said, I'm blown away by it. Yeah, that's that's what these movies have become. They're, you're not in it for the dastardly plot that must be beaten or disrupted, right. you're in it because you've heard about the stunt that Cruz has pulled off. I think probably going back to the stunt in the skyscraper in Dubai. Yeah. Um, those have become why we see these films. And so that was totally my experience when he's hanging from the helicopter and you're just thinking about, is he is he going to be able to get his leg over that <laughs> right. piece of metal so he can swim? I, I'm not concerned at all about Ethan Hunt or even the mission at that point. I'm only thinking about the fact that it's Cruz hanging there. And I think that's the standout scene also because it's the one most clearly you can tell, at least it seems to me, there's not 
a lick of CGI being used. No. When, when it's him actually hanging Truly. there. And that's just something we're not getting very much anymore. And this isn't to be a, a rant against CGI. There are times where mm-hmm. it's probably been used and I've been fooled. I think it's used a fair amount in this film, in other scenes to sure kind of cheat from you know actual crews to something maybe in that parachuting scene while that happens and then gets us back on him. Um, but I don't think we get this sort of purity of stunt work very often anymore. No. And so that in itself is a gift that these films are giving us. And if it does take you out of the movie for a little bit, I guess that's a price I'm willing to pay. Yeah, that's the thing. It's just a little bit because if you are caught up in the movie and the character, and I was, you go from that distraction to being in the moment as he's yeah. descending and you're paying attention to the choices he's having to make in the air. And I'm back into the film. So it's fleeting. My favorite sequence, honestly, though, in the film isn't one of those huge set pieces, and I would never ruin it for anyone, but it's an early scene where they're trying to extract some information from a target. And when you reflect on it after you've seen the film and you know how it all plays out, you realize that both the scene itself for the audience and the interrogation hinge on Cruz's performance. And again, this question of Hunt's character and what we believe about his character. And I mean, his character as a man, his makeup as a man, his conviction. And there's an element of humor to it, which there is actually at some point in almost every one of these action sequences. Yeah, that's the one that actually I was in on the okay. <laughs> trick pretty pretty early well, on. You're smarter but, uh, than me. I was not. I forget what, it, but, you know, now that you mentioned though, I think it was it was that performance that you're talking about. That's what clued me off to something because okay. he wasn't acting like Ethan Hunt there, right? Ethan Hunt would not do that. His, his reputation is that I don't know if by the book is the is the right phrase, but he's going to if you can be in this business, this mm-hmm. spy business, and conduct it morally, and you know not be willing to sacrifice the lives of police, which is something that comes mm-hmm. up in a later scene. That guy would not have behaved that way. Okay. You have a point, and that's a fair argument. That's what I sniffed out. Sure. But with me, I didn't sniff it out because I think I saw this as a progression of Hunt's character based on what we see very early in this film, but going back to the previous film, which I would love to revisit, and I would have to before I would really get into ranking these movies. These last three are definitely my favorite, the ones by McCrary and Brad Bird. But this film surprised me in the way, unlike all the others to my recollection, it does really pick up from a continuity standpoint where the last one left off. So I still had some of that residual personal animus that Mm -hmm. was in that last film hanging over this film. And then the extent of the threat we see that they're trying to extract information about. Right. I believed it and I believed Cruz. It would send him to that that place. I did. So that also sort of brings us to Ferguson. And if I had another minor quibble with fallout it's that she's a bit more hapless here for much of the movie when she was such a refreshing force in the last film Mm -hmm. and really she gets thwarted until i think finally in the end sequence the real climactic action sequence she has a chance to make her mark in a way that she really did in the last film yeah I would agree with you, and that's why my gut instinct is that I think Rogue Nation is the better of the two films and my favorite of all of these films. Yeah, I think I'm with you there. It's because of that little dance, that duet, that that film mostly is between those characters in a way none of the other films are. But 
I don't want to hold that too much against McQuarrie here because I understand the impulse to not do that again. Sure, you've as got to do something as new. she is as a character. Yeah. And to go back to what started this conversation, they've decided this movie is about Ethan Hunt. Right. And that's what it is for better or worse. And I think what they're trying to do here also is substitute Cavill for the part that Ferguson played in Rogue Nation, where you're not quite sure where he stands and he's both partner and antagonist in certain times. I, I would say he's... Exactly what this movie needs in the action scenes. Mm -hmm. But man, anytime there's a sequence of dialogue, it's just like, especially with Cruz, you feel bad because he'll throw off an Ethan Hunt quip and it just like bounces off Cavill. Like, yeah. like nothing was said. And I don't know if it's always done purposefully. Yeah. I felt really I bad. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt <laughs> well, based the, on who that character is. Yeah. Well, that, at first I was like, okay, is this is this the James <laughs> Bond himbo like we're getting here? But I don't know if that's how we're supposed to take it. And there's the one scene where it's just Cavill and Angela Bassett. Mm -hmm. And man, when Angela Bassett looks unsteady in a scene, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to put the blame on the on other person. Else, whoever else in is in the scene. scene. And it just happens to be him. Now, that said, this yeah. goes back to what I said about Cavill being the immovable object. Mm -hmm. Again, without – Getting too into it, when there is a point that he and Cruz have to come up against each other, right. what I love is how it's staged by McCory. I'm just going to say that what turns the tide is the fact that Ethan Hunt is in motion. He uses motion to get the better right. of Cavill, who essentially – and let's just say this whole fight takes place mm -hmm. on – a granite mountainside. <laughs> and it's so it, like, it's the perfect use of their yeah. two physical features. They're just their bodies and how they use those bodies. Mm -hmm. And how Hunt is just going to use that propulsive movement to get the better of a guy who's younger and bigger sure. and stronger. Yeah. And I guess I tied his performance back a little bit to what I was saying too, about the movie's sense of deliberation and making choices as opposed to acting simply coldly. And in whatever you think might be your best interest. And one of the touches here that stood out to me that I don't recall ever coming up in these films is the recurring conversation about how the IMF goes about these missions with the masks, the make-believe, how they yeah. they pretend to be other people. Halloween and it's all a bit of theater. Yeah. Angela Bassett, who is that cold, calculating CIA boss, I guess she's the one who describes it as what you said, it's dress up for Halloween. But as much as there's something very antiquated, I guess, in that idea, I do get a sense, and I might be reaching here in suggesting that McQuarrie is actually in some way making a quote unquote political statement with this choice. But it's as if he's suggesting through that line of dialogue that you can try to take what you want by force, the way Cavill does, coldly, all about the end result. But that's almost inevitably going to have dire consequences when you do that. Or you can put on a little show. You can try to minimize the damage. You can try to convince rather than coerce. It's almost like just through that, it's an analogy for the need for diplomacy rather than just breaking things well, and blowing and things up. It's also at work in another one of the great action scenes, which is pretty much shown in the trailer, the bathroom fight yeah. where Cavill and Cruz in that case are, are, you know, working together, yeah. but in very, we see in very different ways. Very different ways. <laughs> yeah. That's a stunning sequence as well. Leong Young, I believe is the actor. I may be saying the name wrong, but if we've got immovable object and unstoppable force, yeah, what's, what's he? he? Wow. <laughs> because, because he tops both of them. 
there's it, it's something to do with speed and gracefulness. Yeah, that's I mean, it. and that you know that's why it's a great fight scene. It's not just three guys beating on each other. They right. each have their own style, and that style communicates something about their character. Yes, at it least. Does. Particularly Cavill and Cruz. Mission Impossible Fallout is out now in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. A bit more on Ethan Hunt and a lot more on Cruise in general when we revisit our top five Tom Cruise performances next. Plus, we'll hear some of your Cruise picks as we share listener feedback. Stay with us. This Without ever asking a question about how you doing or who you are. Days go by, soon become days gone by. You never get to question time. It comes and goes. Come back, baby, come back, let's rewind. Come back, baby, let's go back in time. You and I, we were young ones too. You and I, we were young ones too. I know why you choose to have your little <clears throat> group therapy sessions in broad daylight. I know why you're afraid to go out at night. The Batman. See, Batman has shown Gotham your true colors, unfortunately. Dent, he's just the beginning. Heath Ledger's Joker in The Dark Knight, which came to theaters July 18th, 2008. That, of course, makes it 10 years old last month. Film spotting turned 13 earlier this year. So we're already on the record about Christopher Nolan's film. At least I am, Josh. You were not part of the show at that time. But I'm pretty sure The Dark Knight has come up over the course of one or two top fives. I feel like you've weighed in on your appreciation for this film, just maybe not in full review fashion. Yeah, that's a good question. It probably has, man, I, I was going to tease those listeners and, and mention that actually I was the only person to give The Dark Knight a bad review when it came out. But no, I am on board no, with The Dark you. Knight. I'm not that insane and can't wait to see it again because it has been a while. A lot of writers and critics have used this anniversary as a chance to reconsider The Dark Knight and its legacy. We thought we would too, an open week on the schedule as far as exciting new releases. So why not do a sacred cow consideration? of The Dark Knight. As we anticipate that conversation, if you have any thoughts on the film that you'd like to share, maybe you've had the opportunity to revisit it recently and have had a change of heart, either positively or negatively, we'd love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net, or you can send us an email or audio file, or you can leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. If you want another place to weigh in, you can do that through the current film spotting poll. We're asking the best superhero movie of all time is The Dark Knight or Other. 
kind of gives you a hint of where we're standing right now <laughs> before we actually revisit it. We think the stature is anyway in the respect level for this film. Now, as I glance at it, there are not that many votes in. I've already posted it at filmspotting.net. Just scroll down the main page a little bit. It's right there in the middle. The Dark Knight is winning the poll currently with 62% of the vote. I wouldn't be surprised if that's how it ended up or even if it got a little bit higher as we get more votes in. I do want to point out that I was hoping I could set the poll up, Josh, so it would say the option, the Dark Knight, or other. And the way you set that up in this poll tool that we use is to check a box that allows voters to not only say other, but write in what the other would be. But this makes sense, I suppose. You have to give at least two options when you're constructing a poll question. That that box you check for other doesn't actually count as one of the two. So I couldn't just list the Dark Knight. I had to put other there. This is all a long-winded way of saying that if you vote other and you want to submit the film that you think is, in fact, email the us. best superhero film, you can email us or just comment in the poll. There you, you can't go. write it in, but you can leave a comment. We always encourage you to do so, and we appreciate when you Tell us where you are from in addition to your name. Again, that poll is right there on the main page of filmspotting.net. You fought against your red Indians? Yes. Tell me of your part in this war. Why? I wish to learn. Read a book. I would rather have a good composition. Why? Because we are both students of war. So, Josh, I promised that we would share a little bit of listener feedback. I said it was new content. I suppose it's new old content as we got this in response to our top five Tom Cruise scenes back in September of 2017. You just heard Ken Watanabe and Tom Cruise in 2003's The Last Samurai, a Tom Cruise film that did not come up in our top five Tom Cruise performances. Before we revisit that list, let's share some listener feedback, including some comments from Dakota Arsenault in Toronto who's a fan of that film. I loved your Tom Cruise reappraisal, and it makes me want to check out more of his work. Shamefully, I've never seen Magnolia. While I may have only seen about a quarter of his work, I think you both made a glaring omission by not even bringing up his performance in The Last Samurai. His performance is filled with his usual cocky bravado, and if this is one of Adam's few blind spots, he should watch it. Well, I have many blind spots, but that Edward Zwick film is not among them. I'm okay with The Last Samurai. I, I really liked it. I think it's pretty good. That's and probably, I think is pretty good in it. Yeah, that's probably bad on me if I didn't even bring it up as an honorable mention because have not seen it since its release, no. but I remember really appreciating it at the time. I do wonder, boy, it'd be interesting in now that we're taking into consideration cultural appropriation of, of movies set in different eras and different mm-hmm. cultures, how that movie might look today. I think that even got brought up. That was part of the discourse around the film. Then you can imagine it would be heightened now. Yeah. We also heard from Aaron Neuwirth. In addition to director Doug Lyman, there was a mention during the top five that the only other director Cruz has worked with twice was Steven Spielberg. I'm sure others have chimed in, but that's not true. Wow. We were so wrong. Tony Scott had Cruz twice for Top Gun and Days of Thunder. 
Edward Zwick took on Cruise for The Last Samurai and Jack Reacher Never Go Back. Cameron Crowe had Cruise for Vanilla Sky and Jerry Maguire. Oblivion's Joseph Kosinski will be reteaming with Cruise for the Top Gun sequel we are apparently in need of. However, one of the more notable and continued collaborations has been with Christopher McQuarrie, who directed Jack Reacher and Mission Impossible Rogue Nation and Mission Impossible Fallout. Additionally, McQuarrie has been Cruise's go-to guy since Valkyrie when it comes to additional screenplay work needed for his films. So multiple oops multiple collaborations there with Tom Cruise we regret the air Aaron does add his five favorite cruise performances adding this list is not easy number 5 rain man number 4 vanilla sky number 3 magnolia number 2 born on the 4th of july and number 1 michael mann's collateral Evelyn from New York, who says she was a hardcore Cruise fan since she was 13 and is now 41. She's gone to every movie opening weekend except Edge of Tomorrow and The Mummy, understandably in that case, I think, Evelyn. Here's her comment. I was a cinema studies student back in the day, and I was fascinated by the star personas of movie actors, how they would play into their type or against it. I confess I'm more an old-school classic Hollywood girl than anything, and in those films, my fascination found plenty to explore. But Tom Cruise is one of the only, if not the only, classic Hollywood star in the modern era that fits into this idea of the movie star persona and continues to have success. For my own top five, I don't think I can really offer one. My list would be purely sentimental picks. At this point, it's not so much what I think he's good in as much as what my favorites are. But if I had to, in no particular order... Cocktail. It might not be good for you, but it started me on this journey. Top Gun. Honestly, it's just awesome. Okay. Jerry Maguire. I recognize the issues within the movie of walking the line of selling out and making money, but it holds a special place to me anyways for all its open-hearted messiness. Minority Report. I'm not the biggest Spielberg fan, but the combo of the two of them was just magnetic. It played to all of Cruz's best movie star qualities. And then Evelyn has one more here. Edge of Tomorrow. It plays best when it's knocking Cruz and his persona down a notch or five. It falters mostly at the end and when it plays into the typical heroics. And that, Evelyn, I think nicely sums up my entire review of that film, which I mostly like. Yeah, I'm a fan of that film. I think we both agree with Evelyn there. Thank you to everyone for that great feedback. We will get to a little bit more of it after this top five. It's our top five Tom Cruise performances from September 2017. And if you haven't heard this list before, or even if you have, it's all worth it to listen again, just to hear Amy Nicholson's number one pick. Here's the list. What possible good could come from putting Jessup on his stand. He told Kendrick to order the code red. He did? That's great. Why didn't you say so? And of course, you have proof of that. Oh, I'm sorry. I keep forgetting. You were sick the day they taught law at law school. You put him on the stand and you get it from him. Oh, we get it from him. Yes, no problem. We get it from him. Colonel Jessup, isn't it true that you ordered the code red on Santiago? Listen, we're all a little... Eh, I'm sorry. Your time's run out. What do we have for the losers, Judge? Well, for our defendants, it's a lifetime at exotic Fort Leavenworth. And for defense counsel Kathy, that's right, it's a court-martial! Yes, Johnny! That was Tom Cruise. Oh boy, was that Tom Cruise. And I just knew that this had to be the clip that we played going into this top five, our top five Tom Cruise performances, because a few weeks ago, I was just flipping channels late at night, a few good men came on, it's on TBS or TNT, those channels all the time. Mm -hmm. And I don't usually stop to watch it, but I stopped it 
on this scene and watching Tom Cruise as Daniel Caffey just absolutely go bonkers. I mean, just become completely unhinged. It, it mesmerized me, frankly. <laughs> well, and of course, is... then I had to watch Jessup and I had to watch the courtroom scenes and see how it all played out all over again. And I just thought it'd be a perfect setup. Maybe we'll get to some performances here, Josh, in our top five that are less unhinged. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I said something in our American Made review about when his intensity gets a little too cranked up. That's what we have here. <laughs> I think we do. Now, I'm sure you'll have some setup and you'll tell us how you formed your list. But I wanted to kick things off with an excerpt, a brief bit from... The Anatomy of an Actor, Tom Cruise, Anatomy of an Actor by Amy Nicholson. She is on the Canon podcast and she's formerly the film critic for MTV and LA Weekly. And we are going to hear from Amy Nicholson here as we get through this top five. But we're going to hear from her in prose form as I haven't read her book yet, but an excerpt was published over at RogerEbert.com when it was published. And Amy writes this, Cruise himself has earned three Oscar nods and lost. Therein lies the great paradox of his career. In the three decades since losing it, he's become and remained the box office's biggest international star. Globally, his films have scored over $8 billion. Though he's adored by audiences and the most talented directors of his generation, one thing continues to elude Tom Cruise. Respect. He's been a Nazi, a paraplegic, an assassin, a redneck, a car salesman, a samurai warrior, and a drunk. He's played vampires and hustlers and Irishmen and elves. Despite his efforts, Tom Cruise's image hasn't changed. He's still misread as a one-note hero who relies on his charm, even though his characters haven't grinned in a decade. Never has an actor been so closely watched. Here's the line I love, Josh. Never has an actor been so closely watched, yet so rarely seen, so successful while still struggling for recognition. In this process of forming your top five list, Josh, did you see Tom Cruise? Personally, I was already there, but I do think Amy's book kicked off a reappreciation of him. I remember a lot of conversation, and I think we were actually talking about what movie was that. We felt like we were coming to this list a little late, like people had done their appreciation of Tom Cruise maybe two years ago or so, and we couldn't quite identify Mm -hmm. what movie that was hooked on. But now I'm thinking it was probably Amy's book that really kicked a lot of that off. Yeah, I think the book was a big part of it. And I think it coincided with the release of Rogue Nation. It was around that time, 2014, 2015. But she stopped at Ghost Protocol. That's when she was writing the book. So it was up to Ghost Protocol that she covers. And if you want to read that excerpt, we will link to it in our show notes over at filmspotting.net. So I did come into this top five as a fan already, you know, a open to Cruz, maybe still underappreciated him a little bit because I hadn't taken the time to sit down and look at the entire filmography. Um, it was also fun to put together on Facebook and Twitter with listeners. We got a lot of participation on this one, so there is a ton of enthusiasm for him out there. We've been a little more intentional lately about using hashtags for our lists, yes. and we did Top 5 Tom Cruise for this one. And Please use got it. a ton of feedback from people, including Immaterial Mike. He's at Michael Bayer 1. He said, Cruise is one of the only huge movie stars we have left. The guy just seems seems to love making movies and I love watching the movies he makes. And that was helpful to me because it resonated with what I do enjoy and have enjoyed about him for a long time is the sense of joy that you get in his performances. And I think what's crucial about that is for me at least it offsets the cockiness where and that was something that came later and maybe that's why I'm more in that 90s era because his first era was just pure 100% cockiness, right, mm-hmm. that he managed to pull off. And then it started to get tempered a little bit by some experimentation, but also some 
joy in being a movie star. And so those two things balanced and both are in play in a lot of my picks here. So I'll start with my number five, and it's actually a recent performance. It's Edge of Tomorrow. I do think that until its ending, which I'd say wimps out a little bit, this uh, alien invasion flick is all about the deconstruction of Tom Cruise action star. He's not the super suave savior here. He's a weasel. He's this military officer who who looks the part, but he's actually this ex-ad man who's now found himself in this cushy position in military PR. Near the start of the film, when he's ordered by a superior, played by Brendan Gleeson, to accompany a planned assault of the alien forces on the shores of France, he tries to wheeze a lot of it. I'm sorry, the first wave to beach, you mean the front? France. Satellites show minimal enemy movement on the coast. Little resistance. Little exciting something to tell your grandchildren. Well, I appreciate the confidence, General. Yes. I'm do, I do this to avoid doing that. <laughs> it's, I, I, I was in ROTC in college. The war broke out. I lost my advertising firm, and here I am. You know, I do what I do, and you, you do what you do. But I'm not a soldier, really. So Cruz gets sent to the front anyway, and then the movie becomes this meta-commentary on the star's relentless, indomitable, can-do attitude. He dies pretty quickly in battle, but then finds himself alive again, forced to go back into battle, live, die, repeat, as the movie's known now. And it's also just this idea of the unstoppable, ever-youthful Tom Cruise, right? But this time it's something of a curse. Now, as I mentioned, the uh, the climax of the movie does get more conventional. Cruise gets more heroic. But until then, it's really this fascinating performance of self-critique and meta-commentary. I think you could almost argue that the only other film where he pokes a hole in his inherent cockiness to this degree might be his supporting part in Magnolia. Very different performance, mm -hmm. but at least from his vantage point, I think there might be something similar going on there. Yeah, that's a great pick. I do enjoy that movie quite a bit. I counted up all the movies he's made to date, 42 releases. I've seen 74% of them. I don't know where you would stand with that, Josh, but that's probably my highest percentage for any actor who's made over 40 movies, maybe even over 25 or 30. They're just often films that slip through the cracks. And with Crew so far, it's only 11 of those. And if you look at the 31 that I've seen, only three of them, I think, just for purposes of simplifying this, I'd consider bad. Rock of Ages, Austin Powers in Gold Number, which I don't even remember him showing up in. I had no idea he was in that. Yeah. Or so forgotten, at least. I don't even know if that counts. And then the Cameron Crowe misfire, Vanilla Sky. Mm. After that, I was mixed on War of the Worlds. I didn't love that Spielberg movie, but I wouldn't consider it a bad film. And Mission Impossible 2, I haven't seen since it came out in 2000. I do consider it to be, as many do, the worst of all the films in the MI franchise, but it's also not a horrible film directed by John Woo. So there's a pretty good batting average there. And speaking of those Mission Impossible movies, for number five, I'm actually going with his performance as Ethan Hunt. And I could just cheat and say, well, really, it's the same performance across all five movies. So it's him playing that character. Mission Impossible 3, which was directed by Abrams, which I do like quite a bit more than most people do, at least when I see these rankings of the MI movies, that did try to personalize him a little bit more or humanize him, make him 
an actual living, breathing man mm-hmm. in the world, separate from being Ethan Hunt, the world's greatest spy. And I like that aspect, even though I know that doesn't work for some others. But he's essentially the same character through all of these films. If I had to pick just one, I would go with the original, the Brian De Palma original, his performance in that film, even though I'd rank it at minimum third in the series, and I'd probably rank it fourth even behind MI3. The scene I'm going to point to, Josh, is probably one of the more famous ones in the movie where he is having that conversation with Kittredge, the head of the CIA or kind of one of his bosses. And De Palma's using those canted angles, those really tight close-ups, and he is discovering, Ethan Hunt is discovering, that essentially this whole mission, this mission that went terribly wrong, where he's the only one, it seems, who has survived at this point, it was really just a mole hunt. It was put on by the CIA to discover a traitor in their midst. So all these people died, and for what? And we see that kind of trademark smoldering intensity as that camera is fixated on his face. The anger is brewing. That tight shot can barely contain his fury at losing his team, the people he cared for. And there's another element that comes through as well that I think you can trace through a lot of his characters. There is a bit of self-righteousness about that character. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of Cruise characters where they either start that way, they're convinced that they have some kind of moral authority or that they're doing things the right way and others aren't, or they start out pretty cavalier and have no real direction and have to come to some kind of moral reckoning. But we see that righteousness and that righteous indignation in Ethan Hunt's character and Watching it again, you really do see Cruz capture and express a lot of emotions at once. There is that anger I mentioned towards the CIA. There is, I think, sadness coming through, thinking about the people that he lost. There's fear or at least recognition of the fact that he's now a target and he has to get out of here. And then there's that just sense of being perplexed at the fact that if this really was a mole hunt and he knows he's not the mole as he's being accused of being, then who is? I can understand you're very upset. Kittredge, you've never seen me very upset. All right, Hunt. Enough is enough. You have bribed, cajoled, and killed, and you have done it using loyalties on the inside. You want to shake hands with the devil? That's fine with me. I just want to make sure that you do it in hell. His head is really spinning in this scene, and Cruz captures all of that, and as that tension builds and builds and builds... And finally, that explosion as he makes his escape. What do we get, Josh, so gloriously? Cruz running. Cruz just jumping through the glass and running at high speed through, I think, the streets of Vienna at this point, maybe Paris. But he takes off through those streets as the water recedes behind him. And it's Cruz doing what Cruz does best. Yeah, and it's the combination, right? It's it's doing that intimate stuff at first and then being able to combine it with the physicality that that makes him an action star. Yep. Uh, that that is that is what makes him so good. All right, my number four, I'm a little nervous about this now based on uh, some things you said earlier in the show, but I'm going with Tropic Thunder here. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad putting, you are. I'm putting it on the list. I, I am generally a fan of dramatic actors, big stars, trying their hand at broad comedy. It doesn't always work out, you know, a little hint again for Massacre Theater. Sometimes things go awry, but that's what Cruz is doing here. And he's got this cameo as a studio executive slash fascist dictator, Les Grossman. It's beautiful to behold. I just think it's hilarious, unexpected, a full bore. You get a different sort of Cruz intensity here. I, I actually included his verbal beatdown of terrorists who are attempting to blackmail him 
on my top five movie phone calls list. That was way back, <laughs> way back, Adam, episode 391. Oh, you're so. just a pup then. <laughs> yep. We're not going to play that here. I think we had some FCC issues right out of the gate. I got us into trouble with the FCC. Uh-huh. So I don't think we can play that one. Let's go instead with another B rating by video call, this time of the director, played by Steve Coogan, who has let the movie within the movie spiral out of control. Hello, Les. Okay. Hello, okay. Les. We, we, okay. we got you loud and clear here, Les. I see you. I see you. I see you. Which one of you faces is Damien Cockburn? Uh, that's me, sir. Uh, it's good to finally meet you at last. Get some face time. And who here is a key grip? You. You. Hit that director in the face really f- hard. Every time Cruz appears in Tropic Thunder, he's channeling that trademark intensity into this profane comic rage. I mean, you you have to think the guy is exercising something here, getting something out of his system that we're not aware of, whether his experiences as a producer. We know he's very heavily involved in producing most of his films. But yeah, he's getting something out of his system. We just get to watch. We also get to watch the wonderful bonus end credits dancing scene, hmm. which I, I kind of could just watch on a loop for a while. It makes me happy. <laughs> well, I'm a big fan of Tropic Thunder. Good. And I don't remember disliking Cruz's performance. I brought up my notes for that review while you were talking, and I actually didn't see one mention of Cruz in there. So what? I don't know what that I don't know what, what that means. But obviously it was not a strength of the movie for me. He is, you're right, as I said earlier, one of those actors who I don't necessarily want to see take on a character, which he's definitely playing there, complete with all of the various disguise elements, but it's just always Tom Cruise playing at something. For me, there's a sense of awareness and a lack of an ability to totally disappear into that character. It just seems like he always knows and he's winking at you while he's doing it. Well, it's it's, it's a winking movie. It's fun. I mean, every performance in that movie is winking. You're right. Well, this movie doesn't have any winking in it. My number four, the performance is Ron Kovic. The movie is Oliver Stone's Born on the Fourth of July, another movie that we fairly recently did a Sacred Cow review of. I don't actually go in order. We've never talked about this. I don't know what your process is when you're making your notes, but I'd come up with my top five, and then I just kind of dance around and write my notes down for whatever pick strikes me in the moment. I actually have something to say. And in this case, I think I started with three, and then two, and then one, and then I work backwards to four. And I, Yeah, I usually rank them when I'm all done. Like okay. now that I know what I've said. Well, like I usually where move them fall? around yeah, right. after exactly. I end up writing down what I want to say. For me, with Born on the Fourth of July, as I said, I had one through three done. I'd already had this slotted in at four. And then I said, well, I should go back and look at my notes from that review, that show that Matt Zoller Seitz appeared on. And we were talking about his book about Oliver Stone. And we shared our top five Oliver Stone scenes. And I don't want to just repeat what I said there, but I acknowledged during that review right off the bat that this isn't really fair to say because at the time, and it's even true now, I haven't been re-watching a bunch of Tom Cruise movies, and Born on the Fourth of July was, of course, the freshest one in my mind. And since I've never totally disliked Tom Cruise in a movie, the one that I've seen most recently is probably going to be one that stands out. And during that review, Josh, I suggested that I would rank Born on the Fourth of July ahead of his performance in Jerry Maguire. And two other movies that are going to come up higher on this list. So, fine, I'm full of contradictions. But what I said then does hold true insofar as 
he was the biggest surprise for me on that rewatch of the film. Stone being able to take that presence and that manic kind of energy. And what I argued was he doesn't necessarily try to contain it, but try to channel it. And he does so very effectively. And I drew a comparison to Maverick in Top Gun, where he plays him such a way physically that gives off this attitude that he's above everyone around him and this institution of the Navy. And then you see a character like Ron Kovic, and it's the complete opposite. This sense of admiration, this sense of having a call to service and to sacrifice. And he really embodies that well. And that scene that I love, I think, is maybe the most heartbreaking in the film when he says to his father, who's going to love me? And that whole sense of identity that he has is crushed in this film. And then, as we see ultimately by the end of the film, reborn or reimagined. And I just think about how many times in that movie you really recognize how broken that character is, how desperate that character is, and I think Cruz captures it. First time I got hit, I was shot in the foot. I could have laid down. I mean, who gives a now if I was a hero or not? I was paralyzed, castrated that day. Why? So I was so stupid. I have my dick in my balls now, and I think... I think, Timmy, I give everything I believe in, everything I got, all my values, just to have my body back again, just to be whole again. I'm not whole. I never will be, and that's the way it is, isn't it? I'll have a little bit more to say about Bourne on the 4th of July in a bit. But first, you mentioned Maverick. Let's get right to him. I've got Top Gun at my number three. <laughs> I love it. I actually you don't even love this movie. Well, here's what happened. I did not, as a kid, when I was prime age, maybe a little young, a little young in 86, but certainly saw it around then and should have loved it, but resisted it. I, I think, you know, the whole locker room bravado thing never did much for me as a kid. Just, you know, that sort of culture was not my thing. And so I think I saw but, it in but Top you Gun. did play shirtless volleyball. <laughs> With other dudes. Yes. Okay. Spent most of my childhood doing that. So really, why didn't I like Top Gun? I revisited it, though, Adam. Just this last year, I was a guest on the Feelin' Film podcast in May, and they suggested we do Top Gun. I've always wanted to give it another look, so I said, why not? And I'm happy I did because I came out liking it a bit more. I'm not going to claim it's any sort of classic, but first, let me say why it's on this list. And, and I think it's because no matter what you feel about the movie – this here is pure cruise. He's distilled to his grinning, winning essence. I did end up writing a full review on Top Gun for my site, so I'm just going to steal from that here. For most of the movie, the hero worship of Maverick is almost nauseating. It's as if everyone but Val Kilmer's Iceman melts around him. Cruz adopts a smirk that not only fits the character, but is also the look of an actor who knows he's about to become a huge star. The performance would be insufferable if it wasn't so convincing. Cruz slash Maverick believes in himself so completely, we can only assent and shield ourselves from the wattage of his smile. In case some of you wonder who the best is, they're up here on this plaque on the wall. The best driver in his reel from each class has his name on it. And they have the option to come back here to be Top Gun instructors. You think your name's going to be on that plaque? Yes, sir. That's pretty arrogant, considering the company you're in. Yes, sir. I like that in the pilot. Remember, when it's over out there, we're all on the same team. So that's why Cruz is on this list. The reason that I like Top Gun 
a little bit more than I remembered is because I rediscovered how it ultimately pulls the rug out from underneath Maverick mm-hmm. quite a bit in the climax. Oh, here's, sure. Here's what I also found. Amidst all the high fives and motorcycle rides, it's easy to forget that Maverick doesn't win Top Gun. I'd forgotten that. That honor goes to Iceman, who all movie long has been criticizing Maverick for taking unnecessary risks and always thinking of himself first. And in fact, after Maverick's nerves are shaken in a crash, he doesn't regain his confidence until he learns to fly as part of a team. Could Top Gun actually be a portrait of the dark side of American individualism? Maybe even an argument for the value of community, if not exactly communism. It may be hard to see that in the glare of Cruz's toothy grin, but the argument could be made. So I wouldn't go so far as to say Top Gun is subversive, but it subverts Cruz a little bit. Yeah. Right there when he's also at his brightest. And uh, I kind of like that about it. You are still dangerous. You can be my wingman anytime. Oh, you can be mine. Well, I can't wait until his performance in Days of Thunder is your number two because it's basically Top Gun just with race cars. Yeah, and Days of Thunder, I don't think I've ever seen. Maybe because it sort of had that reputation from the start. And I was like, well, if the the original didn't do it for me. (laughs) My number three is a movie that has come up here in some of our poll comments from listeners. And we heard from Jason Eakin with his voicemail. It's from Eyes Wide Shut. Dr. William Harford in that Stanley Kubrick movie. He's a New York City doctor. He's married to Nicole Kidman, who was his wife at the time. She's an art curator. And basically, the whole movie unfolds over one really crazy night where he is set on a bizarre path out in the New York City nightlife, I suppose, after his wife admits that she once thought about cheating on him. And with Cruz, this has come up a few times already, we think of him as this physical actor, the running, the stunt work in those Mission Impossible films. Those aren't talky performances, and in fact, I think they've gotten less and less talky and more physical as the films have gone on, as that franchise has gone on. But there are plenty of his performances that are hyperverbal. Jerry Maguire is one. Rain Man, I would say, is another. A Few Good Men. I think Top Gun, actually, he does... He does use his mouth a lot in that film. He's just as sort of brash with the things he says as he is with the things he does. But even when there isn't heavy dialogue in a Cruise performance, he's always driving a scene. All of the action is revolving around him and his actions. And I think that his performance here in Eyes Wide Shut is the one exception or at least one of the primary exceptions because Bill Harford is an observer. The entire film, he is always reacting instead of acting, which is, as I said, a side of Cruise I had never really seen before, certainly not carrying an entire film. That confession that sends him on a tailspin is one where he is listening and watching the entire time, and then he goes out into the world, and everyone, whether it's male or female, and there's a YouTube video that documents this, but everybody wants him. Everybody becomes physically attracted to him. He's always reacting to that. And he gets caught up in these mysterious circumstances well beyond his control. Again, he's this observer. He's a reactive participant. And he's not just reacting, but he's being tested where he constantly has to hold himself back from acting on his desires. So that charisma that we keep talking about, that energy that we keep talking about with Cruz, in this performance, it's being repressed the entire film, which actually creates its own kind of energy, mm-hmm. I think. Victor, the woman lying dead in the morgue was the woman at the party. 
Yes? Well, Victor, maybe I'm missing something here. You called it a fake, a charade. Do you mind telling me what kind of charade ends with somebody turning up dead? Okay, Bill, let's, 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 let's cut the bullshit, all right? You've been way out of your depth. For the- a scene there where he's confronting Sidney Pollack about some of the terrible things he saw the night before. It takes him almost 10 seconds just to stand up and deliver the lines you heard there. There is a weariness and a weight to the performance as Bill Harford that I appreciate that to me does stand in contrast to the bulk of his other performances, if not all of them. Yeah, it really is a good counterpoint and uh, didn't make my list, but it was tough to keep off for sure. My number two, we're going to return here to Born on the 4th of July. You're right. Our Sacred Cow review is pretty fresh in my mind as well. That was from episode 604. And I think he gives us some of that over-intensity in parts of this performance. And I think that may be what got the Oscar attention. There are those screaming matches he has with Caroline Kava as Ron Kovic's mother. I mean, those are big actory scenes. But what really stuck with me are, you mentioned one of these quieter scenes with his father, played by Raymond Barry. I also appreciated another moment, and this is when Kovic is in the Veterans Hospital, and he's already been told he'll never walk again. But he insists on doing the daily physical therapy, and we see him in this scene hanging limply from crutches, lets out a big smile, and declares that he's improving, even though everyone else in the scene and us in the Mm -hmm. audience know that all he's doing is becoming better at dragging his legs. Uh, That combination of physical activity and confidence, I think, is a Tom Cruise moment, if I've ever seen one, but then underlined by this sad reality of Mm. Kovic's situation. Yeah. For my number two, I've got a little bit of listener assistance. This is a voicemail from one of our regulars now, Jeff Milo. Hey, Tom Flatting, it's Jeff Milo in Ferndale, Michigan, and I'm thinking about Tom Cruise for your next show. I think uh, about the Cruise performances that stick with me, uh, I think they spring from something like just rising to an occasion. If I could make an appraisal on Cruise, it would be that he he really responds to a challenge, I think. I think most uh, of his famous roles and scenes are when he goes toe-to-toe and face-to-face with actors who are generally considered a grade or two above him, uh, Dustin Hoffman, Jack Nicholson, or maybe if he's challenged by, you know, intense, uh, eccentric, meticulous directors like Oliver Stone or Stanley Kubrick. Um, so, I don't know, that, may, that might sound like a backhanded compliment, but when he uh, goes against Nicholson or Max von Zydo or Jason Robards, I think, um, like an athlete making that last Hail Mary play, you really see him rise to, to that occasion. Um, the scene that's forever ingrained in my regard for him is his confrontation uh, of his father, Robards, in Magnolia. Um, I love the nervous, deep breaths he's taking. I love that he's kind of torturously pulled into crying for this man that he hates because he just can't control it. Uh, and that's it. You know, you're, wa- you're watching a man lose his control over his hate. I was there. She waited for your call. For you to come. I'm not gonna cry. 
I'm not gonna cry for you. It is gut-wrenching and heartbreaking and beautiful, and I love it when he rises to those occasions. Great show, guys. Take care. Jeff there, I think, with a really smart take on Cruz overall as a performer and a great choice of Frank T.J. Mackey in Magnolia and that scene in particular, because that's where I'm at with my number two. And we had a few listeners like Jason Eakin earlier and Adam Wells wrote in and said, just look at 1999. Forget a decade. I can pinpoint the year for me where everything changed. It was the year that we got eyes wide shut. And then he's with Paul Thomas Anderson making Magnolia. Now, this is one of those that would qualify as a supporting performance. One of two that is going to make my list here, but the first one that's come up so far. And you alluded to this earlier, Josh, that he is playing one of those hyperverbal, ultra charismatic characters full of that energy as this misogynistic motivational speaker, teaching guys how to pick up women. The name of his series is Seduce and Destroy, I believe. And at least according to Wikipedia, Anderson actually, he said that he thought Cruz was drawn to this role because he had just finished making Eyes Wide Shut, where he was playing, as I said, this totally repressed character. And now he got to just let loose and play a character that was outlandish in PTA's words and bigger than life. And those scenes are fun, of course, though also a little bit disturbing. But it's that scene when he confronts his dad, that catharsis scene that really does stand out. There is that physicality to it, again, when you rewatch it, where he enters. And I just love this moment where Cruz puts his hands on his hips and he tilts his head, almost like he's saying, well, what do we have here? This is a nice scam you've pulled off here, old man, getting me to come back. That's what that says to me. But then he's just as quickly back to normal or what we would think a son would be feeling in that moment. You see the torment he's experiencing. It's in his face, his posture, his entire body, his breathing, as Jeff suggested. This man that he hates, and he hates that he's here, but it's obviously full of a lot of complex emotions. And most of the scene plays out in a long take. There's about two minutes just on Cruz with Robards in the foreground and Philip Seymour Hoffman in the background where we're just looking at Cruz. And he is letting out these feelings that even though Frank T.J. Mackey doesn't hold anything back, he's clearly repressed these emotions and is finally now getting to even let those out with his father who can't talk back to him. And I did see a clip on YouTube from Inside the Actor's Studio, which I remember watching this interview when it came out. But Cruz says there that he hadn't seen his own father in 10 years. And when he first read the script, he had a moment like that with his dad. They had a falling out, hadn't seen him in 10 years, gets a call, your father's dying, goes to talk to him. And his father told him that he'd meet with him as long as they didn't talk about the past at all. Hmm. And he says in that interview with James Lipton that when he read the script, he said to PTA, like, did you know this somehow? Like, how did you know? And he says, no, I just, I just wrote the character and I thought you'd be good for it. But I'm not necessarily suggesting that Cruz is really good at tapping into his own personal trauma. I don't know what he's going through there. But there's a bit of irony in that all he does in that scene with Robards is talk about the past. He brings up mm. their entire history in that moment, but he doesn't dwell on it. And the thing that he says to James Lipton that I think is really insightful about his 
performance style or his approach to acting is he says he's always looking for the spontaneity. He does this extensive research and he'll write these histories like a lot of actors do. So he knows them front and back. But in the moment, he doesn't want to come with that kind of preparation. He wants to just exist in that moment. And you feel it with Frank T.J. Mackey. As I said, you feel it even in just the way he puts his hands on his hips. There's nothing calculated about any of his gestures there. There's one that's even really demonstrative in that moment where he he's kind of holding back letting something out and as if he's clenching his entire body everything about it feels to me anyway like it all happened in that take and we'd never seen it before in that moment now whether or not that's the trick of acting or not doesn't really matter Cruz does convey that there so i'm completely with jeff and with a lot of our listeners in loving that scene even though i find it hard to watch and loving that performance in magnolia yeah, Magnolia and Eyes Wide Shut are probably fighting for my number six slot. So I, I'm with you on your last two picks. At number one, though, I went with Jerry Maguire, the film that didn't necessarily change my mind on him, but did completely sell me on him. Jeffrey Webb on my Facebook page had a good comment about Jerry Maguire. Too many to choose from, I think. But Rain Man, A Few Good Men, and Magnolia are at the top, along with Jerry Maguire. I give the edge to Maguire, as I feel he has to balance so many lines in that film. Sympathetic slash cocky, dramatic slash comedic, romantic slash aloof. That's all true and well said. What I also like about the performance is that it includes this little speech. Cruz gets a handful of speeches in Jerry Maguire, but I really like this one given to Cuba Gooding Jr., who plays the athlete that Jerry Maguire represents. I think it could stand in for what Cruz has done for movie audiences as a star for over three decades now. I am out here for you. You don't know what it's like to be me out here for you. It is an up at dawn, pride swallowing siege that I will never fully tell you about, okay? God, help me. Help me, Rod. Help me. Help you. Help me. Help you. Help me. Help you. He's been working hard for us out there for 30-some years now, Adam. <laughs> You've got to appreciate it. Well, a perfect transition into my number one. First, I will say that Jerry Maguire, I had penciled in at number five for a long time, and for me would be number six then, so my first honorable mention. My number one, though, after building up all this goodwill among, I'm guessing, a good chunk of our audience by giving all love and praise to Magnolia at number two, I'm going to undo all of that with a bolder, weirder choice for number one, but... I stand by it. My favorite Tom Cruise performance, keyword being favorite, is Vincent Loria in Martin Scorsese's The Color of Money. Hmm. Go it's on. my favorite. It's another supporting performance, though it's much more substantial in terms of running time than Mackie in Magnolia, but he is playing second fiddle to Paul Newman as Fast Eddie Felsen. And yeah, I imagine I'll get a little bit of grief for this, but I find, Josh, that most people have never even actually seen this entire film, or if they did, I'm You're raising one of my hand. There you go. Or you haven't seen it since it came out, and you probably don't really have much of a perspective on it. Now, if you Google best Tom Cruise movies, and there aren't a lot of lists out there that do retrospectives on his performances like we're doing. I found only one, in fact, that did that, a top 10 list. But a lot of people did back in 2014-15, around the time of the book. Amy's book, they ranked all of his films. And you'll usually find The Color of Money in the late teens to mid-20s. The Ringer, on their list, I'll give them some credit, had it actually at number five. And I'll link to that list in our show notes at filmspotting.net. But as I said, my favorite cruise, I'll never tire of watching him on screen 
with a t-shirt on that says his name on it, Vince, <laughs> dropping pool shots and dancing to Werewolves of London. I saw werewolves So just based on the entertainment value in watching Cruise in The Color of Money, it's my favorite Cruise performance, but I do think it's an appropriate number one, too, because it ties back to some of Amy Nicholson's comments. This notion of respect eluding him. The part that Amy wrote right after the excerpt I read at the start of this segment is this. I have never thought it was as simple as just smiling through a movie, said Cruz. I've had to work extra hard at everything I've done. Cruz dedicates himself completely to his roles. He has taught himself to play pool, fly planes, there you go, drive race cars, flip bottles, and sing. He's dangled from the tallest building in the world, suffered months in a wheelchair, and locked himself away for two claustrophobic years working with the secret of Stanley Kubrick. He even trained underwater to blow a single air bubble out of his nose so Steven Spielberg wouldn't have to add it digitally in post. Explain Cruz, my drive and determination go back to different times as a kid, I had to set goals and force myself to be disciplined because I always felt I had barriers to overcome. The character he's playing here, Vince, makes nine ball look so easy, and he has so much fun doing it that it's easy to not fully appreciate just how good he is, which is where this whole topic started for us. The level of talent and the commitment it took to get that good, we just completely take for granted with this character, and there is a need for respect that drives Vincent. He doesn't understand how to play the long game the way Fast Eddie wants, where he can dump games and be a loser only so he can win money. He can be an effective hustler. He just wants to unleash hell because he wants to display that talent and he wants to dominate. And that childish need to get that respect, I suppose, is ironically what actually prevents him, the character, from earning the respect of his girlfriend in the movie and also from Fast Eddie, who we could add as a father figure, I suppose, coming off my Magnolia pick as well. I think of an early scene in this movie where Eddie says to him, you're some piece of work. You're also a natural character. And he says to his girlfriend, Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio, you see, I've been telling her that. I got natural character. That's not what I said, kid. I said, you are a natural character. You're an incredible flake. But that's a gift. See, guys spend half their lives trying to invent something like that. You walk into a pool room with that go-go-go, the guys will be chilling each other trying to get to you. Which, again, seems appropriate for Cruz, right? Where he's been written off Mm -hmm. as that type of character, but he is someone who people don't take necessarily as seriously as they should. And Fast Eddie's actually telling him, you need to embrace that. That's your strength. That's going to be a benefit, a gift to you as you embark on your career as a pool player. So that need for respect, the natural overflowing charisma that comes through with the character and the dedication to a craft that comes through in what was clearly hours of repetition and practice in order to become that good all do come through in that cruise performance, even though it is one very early in his career. So it's hard to sort of argue it's a culmination of everything Cruz has done. But for me, it does embody that. Got to see it. Yep. Add it to the list of Scorsese's I have to see before I can be a completist on him. But yeah, Paul Newman, Tom Cruise, and Scorsese definitely needs to be on my catch-up list. So I mentioned the Amy Nicholson book. We've talked a lot about her. We might as well hear from her as she did, and her Twitter bio informs us of this. She literally wrote the book on Tom Cruise. We had to ask her, what's her favorite 
Tom Cruise performance. And anytime we do this, I get a little bit concerned that it's going to be one of the films that's on our list. Maybe it's an overlap. She says Born on the Fourth of July. We've already babbled about that. Or Jerry Maguire. It's not going to add anything that we haven't already heard. The listeners haven't already heard. Well, we did not have to worry about that with Amy Nicholson. Hey, guys. Amy Nicholson here, the author of Tom Cruise, Anatomy of an Actor. So, of course, I wanted to call in with my favorite Tom Cruise performance. Hear me out here. Okay. And I'm saying favorite, not best, but maybe best, but definitely favorite. My favorite Tom Cruise performance is Lestat in Interview with a Vampire. And here's why. I don't know how much people remember the outrage when Tom Cruise was cast as Lestat. I mean, if we had had Twitter back then, it would have completely burned down. People were furious. They really wanted Daniel Day-Lewis or really, like, anybody besides Tom Cruise to play Lestat, this, like, fashionable, thin, red-haired European man who just, like exuded sex appeal you know because the thing with tom cruise is even in his movies where he's like sexy and romantic he doesn't get to exude sex appeal like i mean when you think about him in magnolia he doesn't kiss anybody he doesn't make out with anybody he just talks a big game and that's kind of been cruise's mo really he's not that much of a romantic hero anyways i digress what i'm getting at is that tom cruise was so committed to doing justice to the role of lestat he read every single book in Anne Rice's series. He really knew Lestat's biography, not just the stuff that you see in the interview with the vampire and in that script and in that book, but Lestat's whole arc as somebody who loved in the past and lost and had all this fear about the people he loved leaving him behind. And you see Tom Cruise channel this really deep and empathetic knowledge of Lestat into the character. You see when he, you know, plays piano uh, for Kirsten Dunst and the way his eyes light up when he thinks that she's being nice to him and that maybe he can build this family that they never give him a chance to really build. They they see him as this villain pretty much from the get-go. You know, what I find so affecting about that role is that Tom Cruise is almost so good at Lestat that he ruins the movie because I think Brad Pitt intended to walk into it with just all of the audience's sympathy because Interview with the Vampire is so told from his point of view, from Louis's point of view, that Brad Pitt actually didn't even do any homework. Like he told interviewers at the time that he picked up Interview with the Vampire, the book, and threw it into the trash. So you're watching this whole movie, watching this mopey, mopey Brad Pitt, expect that audiences are going to side with him, that Lestat's this jerk, but Tom Cruise's Lestat is just so much more compelling and watchable and wonderful that, to me, the movie falls apart because Tom Cruise is just so good. Now, are you happy, Louis? That's my favorite Tom Cruise performance. And you might think I'm crazy, but for real, watch it again. Every little detail he does in that film is magical. And that he could pull off that role when nobody thought he could. Interview the Vampire for me all the way. Thank you, Amy, so much for that. We will link to more information about her book in our show notes. And we will also link to an interview she did back in 2015 with Stacey Elaine Dasho called The Rehabilitation of Tom Cruise. That was at theall.com. And I think there's some really good insights there. But 
Interview with a Vampire is her choice. And of course, it's one of the 11 Cruise movies I haven't seen. I've just never been interested. I've also it's Brad Pitt, isn't it? It's partly Pitt. It's also partly Tom Cruise. The two patron saints for me of don't let them play characters. And they're vampires. Playing characters, playing <laughs> vampires. But no, if, I'm, not... if I'm hearing Amy, it, it works. Where yeah, I really feel bad, Josh, is that I could have. I could have found time this weekend. It's always so hard for me to find a movie with my wife that she actually wants to watch, a film spotting movie that she actually wants to watch. She totally would have watched Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt play vampires. And I, I screwed up. You didn't do your homework. You're, no. You're not nearly as dedicated as Tom Cruise. This no, is I'm not, not. This is not an oddball pick for me. I have Interview with a Vampire as an honorable mention for my list. I also had, as I said, Eyes Wide Shut and Magnolia. I think Rain Man, I gave some consideration. Mm-hmm. We've talked about him possibly giving the better performance than Dustin Hoffman, even though Hoffman's pretty good there. Uh, collateral. Peterson W. Hill on Facebook said, has to be collateral. All the charisma and charm are there, but they are met with the deadness behind the eyes. Accurate. Really like that performance. And then here's one I'll go to bat for that is an oddball. Night and Day, a lark of an action spy flick with Cameron Diaz. Yeah, he's in. That has Larson recommends all over it. He's pretty pure cruise there. She's a lot of fun. Good film, Night and Day. You like any goofy movie Cameron Diaz is in, don't you? Put her on the road, put her running from killers, and you're good. A Life Less Ordinary, are you referring to? Oh, so good. Which, I haven't seen Night and Day, but in comparison, it's probably Citizen Kane. I don't have any honorable mentions that stand out as unique here. I suppose I will say, I've always been a fan of some of his early 80s movies, not only Risky Business, his small part in The Outsiders. Loved that movie, loved that book as a kid, and I've always been a fan of All the Right Moves, so I'll give him some credit there. Now, if you do want to trace the -the over-the-top, unhinged, Tom Cruise, you can trace that all the way back to Taps, another movie I saw a bunch as a kid where he has one of the best lines ever as he just unloads on people with a machine gun in a burst of violence. I'm just going to leave it there. I'll, I'll let you I'll let you YouTube it and see if it's yeah. out there, but have it's, not seen Taps. It's Cruise at his unhinged best. It's beautiful, man. Tom Cruise there as David Sean. I didn't know that character had a name. I just knew him as the beautiful man, beautiful, (laughs) in 1981's Taps Cruise, as I promised, at his unhinged best. Now, I had my number one Tom Cruise performance as Vincent from The Color of Money. I think agreeing with Evelyn that that choice more about favorite, perhaps, than best. I don't even know how really to distinguish that with Tom Cruise. Mark Larson in Salt Lake City, Utah has my back. He says, I was surprised and completely thrilled that you picked Tom Cruise in The Color of Money as your number one. That movie is one of my all-time favorites, and I've always felt Cruise's performance as the flaky, immature Vincent is a highlight of the movie. It's one of the few times I forget I'm watching Tom Cruise and actually see the character he is portraying. Watching him slowly deflate when Fast Eddie calls his flakiness a gift is more subtle than Cruise gets credit for. His transformation by the end of the movie is both believable and real. Young son Kim from Oakland, California, also shared his list. At number one, he is Born on the Fourth of July, one of my favorite films and a harrowing performance by Cruz. Number two for him is The Color of Money, a very underrated film. Cruz is just so fun to watch. In my opinion, his performance is what elevated Newman's to an Oscar win. Love the scene in the stairwell where he breaks the handrail. Number three, Rain Man. Cruz does all the heavy lifting. Hoffman, while good, is pretty much one note. Cruz plays the character who changes and basically has to play against a green screen that is Hoffman's performance. (laughs) That's one way of looking at it. Number four here, Jerry Maguire. Cruz's most human performance and most comedic. Number five, Magnolia. Balls out collaboration with Paul Thomas Anderson. 
Jackson, brilliant, although the bedside scene was clearly heavily influenced by Brando's bedside scene in Last Tango in Paris. And Young Sun has an honorable mention. Can I just say, I love Amy Nicholson. Interview with a Vampire was a milestone for Cruz. I'm not a huge fan of the movie, but Cruz proved everyone wrong with that performance. As she mentioned, by the mid-90s, there was this sort of Cruz fatigue going around with his celebrity and success. He couldn't fail. People were starting to question his actual acting skill. Then the news of him playing Lestat became a massive cultural debate. I was living in Hollywood at the time, and it was just crazy. Everyone, including Anne Rice, publicly hated the idea. But then it came out, and in my opinion, Cruz saved that movie. He single-handedly saved what otherwise would have been just a dreary movie. The public and press immediately went silent, proving again that Cruz was king. To me, this was a major marker in his career. What's the last freaky thing like that he's done? I'm trying to look up his filmography right that now. It really feels Is, like wasn't a departure. There, yeah, wasn't there a, like well, a musical not too long ago, right? There is Far and Away. But that was even before no, no, Interview I'm with thinking, a Vampire. I, I'm thinking accent. like the most recent years. Like I, I was just thinking to myself, is he due, you know, like I had a, a little smidge of fatigue with Fallout because of the status he's at. And so I'm wondering, is he due for a Lestat type performance? And, and here, maybe Rock of Ages would be it, yeah, which that is would be the musical 2012, not of. too long ago. That that would be an out there choice for him, for a guy who's playing off of a star persona. The whole yeah, character. I didn't. Is about I didn't that. see it, so I can't. I can't really make much judgment besides when I heard about it. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, but you really, can he's, judge it. You don't need to see it. <laughs> bad. Okay, he's been on a run here of not always super successful. There's the Mummy, but pretty much star vehicles. Yes, and I think we all probably did feel that fatigue, and that is why, as I recall, when we did our top five Tom Cruise performances list, I was a little bit surprised as I looked back through his filmography at just how many movies. I genuinely enjoy some. I genuinely love. He has consistently made a lot of very good films. And I do think we take them for granted. Yeah. I'm not complaining about the recent run he's had, but I'm personally ready for something a a little goofy. I would be up for that as well. I'm going to completely contradict myself, though, after just pointing out how venerable a run he has had as an actor and note that I'm still not convinced he could pull off Lestat. (laughs) I haven't seen it, but I kind of refuse to believe that he's as good as Young Son and Amy Nicholson argue. And it's impossible to disagree with Amy Nicholson because she is so wonderfully eloquent on the topic of Cruise in that film. She makes me a believer, but I somehow still have a hard time buying that he nails that role. Obviously, no, even a year later, I still haven't caught up with it. Yeah, and I would like to revisit it. I, I probably mentioned this at the time, but first published review of mine ever was interview with the vampire. So I had no idea what I was talking about. So I would not trust my judgment. Is that in the film archive? Can Um, I, can I dissect that? Probably not because that would have been in in the weekly regional news. (laughs) And I don't think things were digital then. (laughs) Probably not. Those are our top five Tom Cruise performances. We would still love to hear your picks or any other comments about the show. The email is feedback at filmspotting.net. At filmspotting.net, you can find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. The Film Spotting poll is there as well. And we're asking, the best superhero movie of all time is The Dark Knight or other. Also, if you haven't already, please check out our sister show, The Next Picture Show. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or through your preferred podcast app. Out in wide release this weekend, The Darkest Minds. Here we go. After a disease kills 98% of America's children, the surviving 2% develop superpowers and are placed in internment camps. Mm. Guess it's based on a YA novel by Alexandra Bracken. Christopher Robin 
also would qualify as YA material, probably. Ewan McGregor as the grown-up Christopher Robin there from Winnie the Pooh lore. And The Spy Who Dumped Me, also opening. It stars Mila Kunis and Saturday Night Live's Kate McKinnon as best friends who unwittingly become entangled in an international conspiracy. Do they both hang off a helicopter? Probably, okay. though I'm guessing stunt doubles. Probably I'm just going to go out on a limb there. If none of those titles entice you, maybe this one will. In limited release Generation Wealth, Queen of Versailles director Lauren Greenfield's new doc where she examines the richest society the world has ever seen. Another documentary out now, McQueen, about the iconic fashion designer Alexander McQueen, who committed suicide in 2010, and Puzzle, a suburban mother, played by Kelly McDonald, discovers a passion for solving jigsaw puzzles, which unexpectedly draws her into a new world where her life unfolds in ways she could have never imagined. It happens sometimes, Josh, when you try new things. The great Irfan Khan also stars. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, make a choice. The Darkest Minds, Christopher Robin, The Spy Who Dumped Me, or Puzzle. You, you think these sound that dire? I usually like to save this question for really dire options. I mean, I'm not okay. gonna I'm not gonna rush out for any of these, but what's not I dire? Think, I think they all what's not dire? What? You're stalling, Cruel. make your choice. Cruel to these works of art people have dedicated hours, months, maybe years of their lives toward. Um, I'm gonna go see I'm gonna go see the spy who dumped me. I am too. All right. It's probably only about 84 minutes. Let's do it. If none of that appeals to you, there is the Black Harvest Film Festival taking place at the Gene Siskel Film Center right here in Chicago. We will link to more information about that fest in our show notes at filmspotting.net. Safe to say your best option. It probably is. Next week here on the show, as promised, we will get to our 10th anniversary Sacred Cow conversation about Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight and... This is still being debated a little bit here internally. We threw out the idea on the last episode, Josh, of doing a tie-in top five with The Dark Knight. We could consider what are the top five superhero movies since Mm -hmm. The Dark Knight. We're going through some of those options. Our great PA, Andy Mitchell, doing all the heavy lifting there. But I am also excited to share with our audience the audio from my 30-minute panel that took place a couple weekends ago with Chris Messina. The great Patty Clarkson. I can call her Patty. Yeah, Let's never I can't. forget, Josh. I no, can't. You can't. And Gillian Flynn, the writer of the book, Sharp Objects, and also the writer and executive producer of the new series that stars Amy Adams, along with Patricia Clarkson and Chris Messina on HBO. So we might go ahead and run that for our listeners. I'm guessing there are quite a few out there who are partaking in that eight-episode series on HBO. So I wasn't able to attend that event, so I would like to hear it. As I think you're right, many listeners would. Mm -hmm. And also, it's a lot less work for me. It's a lot less work. You know where my vote is. I do. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. We'd also like to thank the Communication Arts Department at Trinity Christian College in Palos Heights, Illinois, which provided the recording space for this episode. Learn more at trnty.edu. If you enjoyed this show, and why wouldn't you have? Give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us reach new listeners. Our music this week is by Carolina Story. It comes from the album Lay Your Head Down. More information is at carolinastory.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. 
Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.